I want to begin tonight with a story from Aesop, Aesop's fables. One day, the north wind and the sun watched as a man meandered down a path. And watching him, they decided to have a contest of which of them could blow or remove the coat from the man first. So the sun and the wind enter into this contest, and the wind goes first. And the north wind howls and blows with extraordinary ferocity, and the man, feeling the wind, tugs his coat closer, hugs on tighter to hold himself against the cold. Then it was the sun's turn, and the sun just simply sat there and gradually turned up the heat. And then the man decided to take off his coat and leave it on the road as he continued on. I love the subtle power of that story. I feel like we tend to approach things like the wind, overpower, conquer, coerce things to go as we wish. And we're not as prone to be like the sun and just simply gently influence. And yet we learn, don't we, which one actually works. I can recall growing up being told by the Bible, by the Ten Commandments, by Paul, by youth pastors, by parents, that I should not envy. But that does little to change someone who envies people. You know you shouldn't envy and you don't want to envy, but you're stuck in this need to want to be someone else. No preacher throwing pulpits around or ripping Bibles over heads is going to make you to stop envying, right? It's going to take the gradual lessons of life and learning who we are in Christ that's going to finally get us to shed that coat of envy and get rid of it. We live in a society in which messages are pumped at us loudly. We have advertisements everywhere we go. If you've got any sort of free app on your phone or whatever device, it probably comes with ads, and they're stalking you. You talked about a coat with a friend, and now coats are all over the ads on your phone and everywhere you go online. And, of course, the website's full of them. Uh, you watch television, you're inundated, inundated with messages. Uh, if you watch some of those cheaper free streaming services on television, they come loaded with ads right in the middle of the best part of your movie. It's just everywhere we're hit with ads and messages. You're driving on the freeway. You're not even safe there, whether it's what's on the billboards or on the radio or whatever else is there are messages being sent to you and so culture is loud it's like the north wind it's beating its message at us yet the christians often feel like because this is loud we need to ratchet up our volume and match it or even outdo it And so we have some Christians who occupy the noisy center of society and basically play the same game. When I wonder if we would be better off taking the tactic of the gentle warmth of the sun, which eases people into, I want to change. I want to take this off. When we come here to Ezekiel, I told you this is the weird prophet. Isaiah is a thundering preacher, Jeremiah was the weeping emo, and Ezekiel is the weirdo. <laughs> Look what God has him do here. In chapter 3, verse 15, 16, 316, at the end of seven days, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. This is after, remember, he saw this bizarre vision He was for seven days beside himself going, uh, trying to make something of it. Now God speaks. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And then he goes on to say, you know, if you say to the wicked, 
If I say to the wicked, you are surely, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person's, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Ezekiel, you're going to be watchmen. Now here's what a watchman did. They watched. At the, at the walls of a city to see if trouble was coming. And if trouble was coming, they were to announce it to the city so that they could do the necessary procedures to receive the trouble. Now if the watchman sees the trouble coming and decides, mm, it's so much work. To relay the, the whole procedure of relaying messages around here is, it's a broken system. It's too much work. I don't think that's that big of a threat. And he just kind of lets it come and eventually the city gets annihilated with disease and plague and sword. Whose fault is that? That watchman has got to wear the blood on his head, right? He failed his job. What he's telling Ezekiel is that this is your job to the house of Israel. When I give them a word, you need to tell them. And if you don't tell them, it's on you. Now, it then goes on to say, if you tell them and they do nothing about it, hey, the enemy's coming in the city's like, eh, you're lying. Well, then the watchman is clear from guilt. He did his job. It was on them. Right? So, you're a watchman, Ezekiel. But, watch this. In verse 24 of chapter 3, But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself within your house. Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet and preach to the people, but don't leave your house. And, it gets weirder, 25, You, son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. You're going to be locked into your house. Now, I read a commentary that kind of went on too long about whether or not these are literal cords or something else. Don't waste your time. Um, Probably doesn't matter, but as you'll see later, he seems to have some sort of freedom. These are These cords are like, it's God basically putting it within him that I can't leave. God wants me to stay here, so he's going to choose to stay in his house. But watch this. It also implies that the cords kind of tying him down are what comes next. Verse 26 says, And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. Do you see the problem? Hey, you're a watchman. I need you to declare to them when you see trouble coming. Oh, but by the way, you're not going to be able to talk. What? What? How? It's not fair. Starting now, stop complaining. <laughs> and so Ezekiel, his, his voice taken from him. Oh, man, that's got to be rough. He's got to watch what's going on before him and not be able to warn the people, not be able to talk to them. You ever see something that just enthralled you? Did you go to an event? Did you watch a movie? Did you see a sunset? Did you hang out with friends and learn an amazing game? Did you participate in something that was so great you just had to share with someone? And nobody cared. It's agonizing when you cannot speak about that which is fulfilling your heart. And Ezekiel is going to be seeing this going on. Sorry, mister. I turned your volume down. You're a squeaker toy without its squeaker. But, verse 27, when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh he who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. So you're going to be a watchman, but you're not going to have words. The wordless watchman. Wow. We have this saying, what would Jesus do? 
but I've never heard anybody ask, what would Jesus say? I think it's an interesting question. We're all about, you know, doing the right thing, doing what Boy Scouts would do and good, honorable citizens, paying our taxes and helping someone with some snow and whatever, not throwing your berm onto your neighbor's side of the... Like, we're into that, right? What would Jesus do? It's easier for us to process. But I don't find myself, at least, and I'm assuming I haven't heard it talked about, I don't think we really stop to say, what would Jesus say? Even when it comes to telling the truth to someone, I think we're quick to the gun. We're quick to say, boom, truth, you got to hear this. Rather than, but how would Jesus say this? What would he say about this? And you know, half of Jesus' preaching was in stories. Talk about a watchman who's not saying, everyone, you're going to hell unless you hear this right now. He's like, well, actually, there was a farmer who was throwing out seed. And everyone's like, what does this have to do with anything? But that's the way the Son of God did it. He was not the mighty gale coming in and making a raucous. He was the gentle son warming us into the Father's kingdom. And Ezekiel is given, he's being tied up, tongue-tied, if you will. You're not going to be able to say what you want to say. You're going to have to find another way. Wow. So in chapter 4, watch him get creative. He's basically going to put on a big drama, a silent drama in chapter 4. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set up camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle, the thing you bake your eggs on, fry your eggs on, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. In your absence of words, Ezekiel, I want you to take your bucket of army men and play battle right there in your front yard for the people to see. You're a prophet. Remember, he's 30 years old when the vision of God comes to him. Had he not been in Babylon, if he was still in Jerusalem, he would be now doing important stuff in the temple as a priest. Nope, he's in Babylon. He's not a priest. Now he's a prophet. Okay, that sounds exciting. I'm a prophet. And then God says, yeah, but you're not going to talk like a prophet. You're going to play with army men and soldiers, and you're going to build little models of Jerusalem and play war. I'm 30, God. No, remember, you can't talk. I'm just thinking it, you know? It's so weird, I know. Then it gets even weirder. Verse 4. While you have this model displayed and you're playing with your army men, verse 4 says, Lie on your left side and place the punishment, or it can also read the iniquity, the sins, of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. Okay. 390 days. (laughs) He's going to lay on one side of his body. Now, this does not mean 24-7. Your body could not do that. You would severely hurt your body if you laid on one side for 390 straight days. This is more like he would punch in in the morning, lay on his side for a certain number of hours with the little you know, war siege around Jerusalem there, and everybody walks by. One week goes by. Jeremiah is laying on his left side every day during these hours. What's going on? Over a year... They walk by his house, see the little model of the army and the city of Jerusalem and him laying on his left side. And everyone is now, he's the talk of town within two weeks, right? Have you guys seen Jeremiah? Uh, did I say Ezekiel? Have you seen it? You're following me, right? It's all Ezekiel the whole time. Have you seen Ezekiel? Have you seen what he's up to? What's he doing? What a weirdo. He's gaining attention. People are beginning to peer, to look, to wonder. 
Is he ever going to lay on his right side? What's he doing? Then in verse, uh, the next one, six. And when you have completed these 390 days, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. 40 days I assign you a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared. And you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. (laughs) Congratulations, you did 390 days of laying on your left side. 40 more for extra credit on your right side. Wow. Okay, so we're looking at about 14 months of this. You think your job is bad? Can you imagine waking up and, yep, back at work again, and you're laying on your left side, and that's all you do. Maybe you move one of the little army tanks closer to the city. Done for the day. And you just lay there until the day's over. Makes the cubicle sound really entertaining, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, why 390 days? Why 40 days? You know, why weren't they even? Like, come on, man. It's like the rowers that have like these really long shoulders on, big shoulders on one side and skinny arms on the other because they're busy rowing on one side of the boat. Like, why why this inequality? Um, I read quite a bit and nobody, everybody basically says, eh, we don't know. So really briefly, the 390 days is believed to be either the amount of, it's talking about the uh, state of time that Israel will be in their state of sin. Okay. So one option is that the 390 days are from the day Ezekiel lays down all the way back to the day Solomon built his temple. That's roughly 390 years from then uh, that Israel had been sinning against God. So people are like, okay, he's probably laying down to symbolize you guys have been sinners this long and now Jerusalem is going to be attacked by an enemy. Or it's counting the other way. From the day that he lays down, it's 390 years in the future, when Israel will finally be uh, given a kingdom again, which is adequate as well because it's roughly 390 years when the Maccabees, um, something that we, ha- we don't talk a lot about because it's not in the Bible, but about 150 years before Jesus was born, um, the Maccabees was a family of rulers in Israel who overthrew the Greeks. And for a brief period until the Romans came, they actually set up their own kingdom and had kings on the throne again. They just weren't descendants of David. So we usually don't think of that as being their legitimate kingdom. So it could be referring to that period when Israel will finally be, eh, finally we're independent again, even though it was a short time. Either way, we don't have a clue. It's just, it, But whatever it is, it meant something to the people. Because God said in verse 8, this will be a sign. Uh, No, it wasn't verse 8. I don't remember what it was. Oh, verse 3. He said that this would be a sign to the house of Israel. So they understand whatever it is. But man, can you imagine the talk of town? What's this crazy prophet doing? Now, we know he wasn't just laying on his side all the time. Because in verse 9, we see he's actually doing something during this enactment. So the drama thickens as he now has some props along with the army men. In verse 9 we see, And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer. These are all grains with a couple of beans. And put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. So usually all of these items would be standalone items to eat. But they're all being put together to symbolize there's a scarcity of food. So you're mixing everything that you can just to make something. Um, So he's going to do this, and it says, During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day, which is roughly 8 ounces. From day to day you shall eat it, and water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, which is a little bit less than 3 cups. From day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a sign, you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. So now in addition to him laying on his side with this war model in front of him and everybody coming by to gawk at him every day, he's now to set up a little baking station where he makes a tiny amount of bread every day. 
Now, human dung, Ezekiel, remember, he's from a priestly family. He was going to be a priest. He's like, I can't do that. That's unclean to me. So he has this little dialogue with God, presumably maybe in his head, or maybe this is before he actually had to be silent. We don't know. But he says, um, in verse 14, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. And the implication of all this is, and I definitely have never eaten anything cooked over human dung. Then God said to me, see, I assign you cow's dung instead of human dung. How nice. On which you may prepare your bread. Which actually was not unusual to use cow manure uh, to cook food. It was, it was a reusable source. Like, what are you going to do with all these cow patties? Ah, we'll cook our food with it. So definitely wise things. God was being nice to him there. And you might be wondering why in the world even bother with this weird recipe of bread, which may have tasted weird, and why burn it on poop? (laughs) And can you imagine how everybody else is walking around going, what is this prophet when god met ezekiel he took some of his brain didn't he well verse 16 moreover he said to me son of man behold i will break the supply of bread in jerusalem they shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay i will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment So when this vision, when all this begins, we're at 593 BC, which for some of us may not mean a lot. 586, so less than 10 years from this point, is when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is wiped off the map. So Ezekiel is in Babylon because he was part of the first deportations, which is Babylon's way of saying, we own you guys, so we'll take all your best and we'll take them to our place and leave the worst with you. Um... It will be less than 10 years from then when the entire city, because they will revolt against Babylon, they'll just say, okay, done with you, erase you. What, Jer- what Ezekiel, it's so hard to do one prophet to the next, isn't it? If I keep saying Jeremiah, it's Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel um, is warning the people, hey, we're not going to get out of this. The Babylonians are going to win, and I'm going to symbolize what our people are going to be going through. So I'm going to lay on my side to symbolize a siege, and I'm going to eat what the people in Jerusalem are going to eat. So I did my homework and found out what exactly all that bread and water equates to. It's eight ounces of bread and um, like 21 ounces of water. So every day he got to drink this. This is 17 ounces. This, uh, so it's a little, roughly less than what he was given. So imagine you're on, some of us don't drink enough water as it is, but if you imagine all your coffee and your water and your soda is in this, you're in trouble, right? This is not a lot. Um, you're supposed to drink about eight of these a day. So, you know, Ezekiel's on bare, um, minimum rations. Thanks for all your help. And then, Eight ounces of bread is this. So, I mean, that looks like, yeah, I'd be full after I ate that. But if this is all I ate every day, once a day, I would definitely not only get tired of this, but I would not be very well nourished. And I would probably be incredibly overweight laying on my side, eating nothing but carbs. So, this is what he has to live on, just to put in perspective. So that's also what people, when an, an enemy comes and tries to destroy your people, they basically close off the gates so you can't get outside, and you're stuck with whatever is in your supply homes, your, your warehouses in the city. And so in time, you're just going to be eating as little as you can to get by. And the reason for God wanting him to do it over human dung was because, well, when you're trapped in the walls... How many trees can you sit, cut down in a city to get wood? Whatever is left is going to be gone really fast as everyone's fighting for resources. Uh, how many cows are going to be walking around the streets? Nothing to eat for them. You're not going to let them eat. You're going to be eating them, if anything. So what you have left is your own refuse to use. And so that's why this weird display, right? God is trying to get the people's attention. Now, what if Ezekiel... Simply said, okay, I got the message, and he went, and he hooted, and he hollered, and he kicked stools, and he threw his his hand across the 
podium and the pulpit and waved the scroll in the air and said, God is going to judge you. The end is here. How many of the people would stop walking by Ezekiel's house, going the long cut to whatever they're doing? Oh, that sidewalk preacher. It would not be very, they would hear it, but they wouldn't receive it. It wouldn't be very effective. But by doing this weird enactment, and not being able to answer their questions, the people ought to keep coming and watching, and it's getting inside them. Oh, I see what's going to happen, and they're feeling, they're feeling the agony as they watch Ezekiel suffer through this. So then there's one more enactment before you can speak. His hair and beard are probably getting very long at this point. So in chapter 5, You, O son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard, then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. So, 14 months of people walk by. What's Ezekiel doing today? What's he doing today? The same. What's he doing today? The same. Starts making it in the paper, right? Every day, like, Ezekiel, move to the right side this time. Everyone's like, you know, the audience swelled. What's going on now? Can you imagine after 14 months, finally someone says, guys, Ezekiel's moving and he's got a sword and everybody races over. Don't harm yourself. It's not worth it. And they come over and they're like, wait, what's he doing as he's cutting his hair and like, he's regaining his dignity again. His self-worth is back. All right, Ezekiel, go. They're rooting him on. But then they keep watching like, what is he doing with his hair? This is really bizarre. So he's cutting off his beard. He's cutting off his hair. And in verse two, we're told what he's supposed to do. It says, a third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. So his little, his little model, he's going to have a little fire, and he's going to throw a third of the hair into that fire. And when the days of the siege are completed, and a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. So he takes another third, and he throws it in the air over the city model he has, and he starts hacking at it with the sword. And then a third part you shall scatter to the wind. And I will unsheathe the sword after them. So then the last remaining hairs, he throws it up into the air and the wind takes it away. Verse 3, and you shall take from these, so from all this hair, take a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. Now the skirts of your robe would just have been the folds. They would often allow a lot of folds in their robes so that they can actually put things in them. It was an ancient way of doing pockets. So he's going to put these hairs in his pockets, if you will. And of these, again, you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. So after all the trouble of saving them, you're going to put them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Wow, what does this mean, you ask? Well, 5 verse 12 tells us. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. So what's in it for our brothers in Jerusalem? A third of them are going to die of starvation and disease because of the siege in the city. A third of them are going to be killed by the invading army, and the other third are going to escape and just go in every direction, and some of them will die in their escape. Some of them will become refugees in other places, like those that are in Babylon. So, here's where God is going to give his final... This is why it pains me, but this is why I'm bringing this final devastation on my people. And this is some of the harshest language we hear from God. Verse 13, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I shall make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you, all around you, and in the sight of of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in my anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am Yahweh. 
I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. Heavy, heavy words. And Ezekiel enacts all of this, as we saw. Then he can finally speak in verse 6. The word of Yahweh came to me. And in chapter 6, he begins to talk about what's going to happen because of their love for idols. They're going to be slain and the bodies are going to fall in all the places where their idols are. Isn't that great? You have made your bed, now sleep in it, in a sense. Sleep forever in it. Look at verse 13, 6 verse 13. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. When their slain lie among their idols around their altars on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all the dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah, and they will know that I am Yahweh. You know what that says to me? It says, be careful what you love. Because the afterlife, wherever you're going to spend that, God has reserved, maybe you actually have booked a place in the afterlife to be with that which you loved forever. So if they love these idols all their life, God's like, all right, I will let you lie with them forever. So that's crazy. What are you loving today? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Or are you ultimately loving other things and yearning and lusting for other things? The problem with having that for eternity is that you know it doesn't satisfy you. And forever you're going to feel unsatisfied. But God will let you follow your loves. And then in chapter 7, Um, the main message is this judgment is coming. So if you look at verse 5, thus says the Lord Yahweh, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. And it goes on to let them know it's coming. It's here. So passages like this are hard for us because it sounds like God is incredibly angry and vengeful and wrathful. Um, There's two ways you can look at this in a sense. I guess you can come up with others. But really the best options are One, God used to be really upset and grumpy, but now Jesus has sort of tamed that because of his love and his sacrifice. And so now Jesus kind of takes all that for us. Or the other one could be uh, that you use the language that God's doing this because you know he's in control, but ultimately you're simply receiving what you wanted. If you wanted to love these things, you want to live for these things, the natural result of them is that it will kill you in the end. And... um, they give God credit because God gets credit for everything. Haven't you noticed that? God gets credit for everything. We have tsunamis and hurricanes slamming into places, and why did God do that? But if you get healed from cancer, nobody asks, why did God do that? It's just interesting. How would you do? God tells you to be a watchman, and he says, but you can't talk. How would you do? How would the church do? What would the state of spirituality in America look like if we couldn't speak our message? I wonder if it would be healthier if we learned to embody dramatic presentations before we learn to speak them. I mean, think about the gale 
that's blowing through society. And every time we try to jump on the wagon, the political disputes are going on in television and coffee tables in internet spaces. And, you know, we think that if we say a certain thing, this is standing up for the truth and for Christ. Is that how they're hearing you? We think that we have to somehow twist, manipulate, contrive, cunning, clever ways of turning every single discussion, even about the weather, into the end is near. Are you ready? Or have you uh, considered, have you ever, oh, that, you lied? Have you thought about the Ten Commandments and how they're going to lead you to hell? Maybe you need Jesus. Um, we need to share Jesus with people. But I wonder if our words would have more weight if we chose to put action before words. I think we love shortcuts. I know we love shortcuts. And we want to just do the easy work of, I said it, not in my hands anymore. But here Ezekiel is asked to find clever ways of showing what God is saying. It's a drama. This is a one-man drama, and he's enacting all of this. And it's drawing the people in. We are in a drama. We are in a drama. There's a beginning when the creator said, here it is. There's a middle with the, the, the tension and the plot of sin and this conflict. And there's an ending that's sort of begun with Jesus' deliverance. God is the director of this drama. He's been putting it all together. He's directing us through it. We are the characters in this drama. He's given us the stage and said, here, I want you to enact my drama. I want you to play your part, which indicates, one, we need not just to be the characters, but we need character. That's part of what it means to be one of God's characters, is to embody his character. That's your part. Play your character well. And one of the best ways for us to learn character is to stop talking the talk and to start living the life. That'll develop character. But then we have a script. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that the word scripture is script. U-R-E. God has given us the script to the drama. Just as Ezekiel is in a drama, we've been given the script. And God is laying it before us and saying, Well, yeah, I love that you're going to quote my words, but... Learn to live the script first, right? Know your script, know your part, so that then you can understand how and when you're going to say what you're supposed to say and how you're going to embody this, how you're going to live this. Everything from where do you lie? Who do you lie with? Where do you sleep? Did you throw all your money at getting a couple extra square footage? Was that what God wanted you to do? Um... What do you eat? Are we eating more than our share every day? Which is not only abusing our bodies, but it's also taking away from other people. Like those are just things right here that Ezekiel are doing, is doing. Watching where he lies and what he eats. Like he's, he's in every part of his life at this point. It's becoming a symbol of who he loves. And we have a problem with putting our words where... We want people to know what we love, but then not every aspect of our life is really lining up with that. What would happen if you couldn't talk anymore? How would that change the way you preach the gospel? I think it would make you healthier in the way you follow Christ. And so I don't know if it would be a bad thing when God shows himself to us, as Ezekiel got this vision that we saw last week, if it wouldn't be bad for us to take some time of silence to let what we learn from God to process before we blab about it. Proverbs have a lot to say about your use of words. And not just say nice things. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. More than that, the Proverbs talk about the amount of words you use indicates the wisdom you hold Uh, in fact, I love, I love Proverbs 17. I'm going to read to you 17:27. You should jot it down because it's great. 17:27-28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. 
Didn't say whoever reads a book has knowledge. Or our favorite, the one who can talk eloquently about things has knowledge. How do you know I have knowledge just because I'm talking before you? I could just be quoting things I've read. How do you know? But if you restrain your words, you have more knowledge. 1727 continues, And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. 28, best part. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. If a fool would just learn to shut his mouth, people would actually think he's wise. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you how many times this has happened in my life. Now, I'm not at all trying to say, I've got this down, imitate me. I'm just quiet by nature, to a fault, okay? Until you give me a mic and there's something I love to talk about, I go too long. So I'm trying to apply this tonight, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but I, I remember I was such a jabbermouth as a child, and... Um, Two things happened. One day, I got surprise called into my teacher elementary school. The teacher, like, I was in big trouble. A parent just called me and said, never, ever again let Brandon McCulloch ride in the car with me again. I want to know what you did to make him tell me that. And I was like, uh, I might have been yelling a little bit. Then, I was in the car. It always happens in the car. And I was with my friend in the back. You know, his mom was driving. I was just, I don't know, I was just talking about things I was excited about. I kept talking. And all of a sudden he goes, you talk a lot. (laughs) That sticks out in my memory. And I think from that moment on, I decided to emulate the person who doesn't talk a lot. Because I took that personally. And, um... And it's so funny. So, like, of course you become more self-conscious as you get older. Like, junior high hits. And you're like... Is gray okay? Like, is this a color that's in now? Uh, are my shoes laced the right way? I noticed the kids have them crosswise instead of going like, uh, you're like, you're like super conscious of everything. And so like, my, like, ooh, don't say the wrong thing. Better just to say nothing than to say the wrong thing. So I made myself really small. And it was so funny because two things happened. First, people just assumed I was really wise. <laughs> They got intimidated by the person who doesn't talk. Like, you must see everything. You know everything that happens here. Um, And then every time that I might have been acting out in class, just ever so slightly, it was the person next to me who got blamed every time. (laughs) Because the teacher would turn out, of course Brandon isn't talking. Uh, Even a fool, so even me in my youth, if I kept silent, I was considered wise. And friends, I think we need to learn this. Now, I'm not, I'm not looking at you and going, you all talk way too much. <laughs> because I don't know how you interact. I don't know how you interact with people, with family. But what the church needs to be known for more than their beliefs, because everybody has beliefs now. Everyone's like, eh, choose. It's like a menu. Which belief system works for you? Um, that's not really appealing to anybody. They want to know which beliefs give you wisdom, which beliefs help you live well. And if we would learn to be silent and only speak when necessary, maybe the wisdom we embody will cause people to say, I always want to live like them. Here's why. Here's why. When we, when we stop talking all the time, we actually embody confidence. We embody that we recognize we are more than our words. Now, you may know somebody, as I do, several people, who seem to think they exist because they talk. And that if they stopped talking, they would suddenly not exist. You would forget about them or overlook them or see right through like, oh, there's nobody there. But the words, if the word became flesh and dwelt among us, they think by the, by the use of many words, I will have flesh and dwell among people. Bad use of that verse. But some people live with that sort of philosophy. Winter wind, please stop. Please stop. You're making me hold my coat tighter. Right? Sometimes we feel like we have to talk. So that people will notice us. So that we will feel better. Hey, I'm somebody. People are looking at me. They're listening to me. Or, Or what's with the impulse to always share our opinion? 
somebody brings up a political situation at, t- at dinner in the other room tonight, you know, and you've just got everyone all of a sudden, ugh, and like they cannot wait for their turn to say something. Why? Are you really going to solve our country's problems because you said something at a dinner table one Sunday night in a small little town in a section not known by many people of Southern California? Like, really? You think that you're going to deliver our nation? What, what, what is it? What, what is it? Like, we just have to share our opinions because, because I want people to know what I stand for and what I don't. Okay. So you are a body of opinions. It's pretty shallow. Or, I just like to see people react. You know, I kind of just say, I can't live another two years with this president. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you want to be known for the guy that instigates and gets people, uh, look, whatever it is. I want to encourage us tonight, because this is what spoke to me as I studied this bizarre passage and thought, okay, what can we emulate here? (laughs) Um, I was just really struck with, but what if, what if, what if, when we receive a vision of God, what if he wouldn't let us share it? What would happen then? What would happen if we decided to weigh our words Rather than thinking that the multitude of words makes us something, what if we realize that the lack of words made us something? We would, I guarantee, because I, there are days when I'm definitely less talkative, um, and I notice more. I see more. I understand people. I listen more. And sometimes I have to do this. Um, I make a conscious effort to say, I will not speak unless asked to speak. Or unless what I have to say is a question that encourages the other person to talk. You know what happens. They say that trigger word, and instantly your brain's going, okay, I have five things to say about that when he's done. And you missed actually what they were really saying. We're not good listeners. We're great talkers. So what if words, what if we treated words like we treated money? If I printed $1,000 and handed them out to us, the value of that dollar, well, we'd all probably have about $10 or $100 or so. But what if I printed $10 only and handed them out to 10 of you? The value of that dollar just went way up, right? Because not everybody has one. Now what you have is special. This is how inflation works. When we start printing more money, the value of what we have goes down. What if we used our words with the same concept of inflation? Sometimes we think, if I say more, it will mean more. And then all of a sudden, the value dips. And people are like, okay. But what if you only spoke... When you actually had something to say. People will lean in and hear what you have to say. The Proverbs also talk about um, the one who... An aptly spoken word is like gold in settings of silver. An aptly spoken word. A word that's spoken at the right time. The right word at the right time. And I work really hard, even if you're thinking right now, you've said enough, you can stop. (laughs) I do work really hard to have something to say for you guys every single week. It is so easy to say something. I could, you know, we could start next week's passage right now. We could read the verses. I could throw some comments that come to the top of my head. Some little applications. It'd be nice. It'd be helpful. Um, you know, it's really tempting to take it lazy every now and then and just like, eh, I have something. Yeah, I can say something about that. Because, um, you know, when you've studied and read the Bible as much, you know, when you get to a certain point, you're just like, yeah, I have something to say about everything. But, but like, what if, what if, you know, 
I, I try hard to say, okay, but let's clear. My journals are full of things to say, and I share about 10% of it. So I'm like, what, but let, what is the thing that needs to be said? Right? Um, and so I work hard to have that happen. And I want, it's easy because I'm preparing for this, right? We don't always prepare for the conversation we have tomorrow. Sometimes these things happen. Somebody comes up and like, you, you didn't plan to talk about Bryce Harper signing with the Phillies, but someone brought it up and now like you have so much to say and you're, you're ranting about why do they make so much or, oh, that was such a good deal. For, you have, you have your opinion. You want to come down on the side. And like, I'm so glad the Dodgers didn't. And they, see, like you just go on and on. Like I could about that. Um, so it's easier when you prepare, but what if we started, you know, the morning with, okay, I'm going to prepare. I'm going to prepare my mouth today. I'm going to prepare the fact that I don't exist because of my words or because of people hearing me, but I exist because I am the son or daughter of God. And that alone is enough. And if I have something to say, it's a bonus. I think we would embody something people want. We live in a noisy world and we are yearning for somebody to do it differently. Yeah. Okay, so I want to encourage us to um, not feel like every situation dictates that you say something, but that we live our days with something to say. So sometimes it's going to be hard. You're like, but I need to tell them right now that living with their boyfriend or girlfriend is sin. But you need to stop before you say that and ask Am I close enough to this person to have the permission to say that? Like, do I have a right to say that? Because yes, they'll hear you and, yeah, I got the truth out. But they may not, you might, to them, be like the north wind trying to blow their fun off their back. Or you can say, oh, I'm really happy that you found somebody you love. And then try to get to know them. You know, and, and maybe there'll be a time when you see the, the, the right time to say something. Uh, maybe they will begin to look up to you and ask, hey, we just got in this fight. What should I do? Boom, your words now mean something. So I'm not saying, you know, stop saying everything you say. Just be more mindful. Do I actually have something to say here? Or am I just interjecting this because I feel pressured to? I feel like I'm supposed to. So if, you're to be, if you and I are to be watchmen, the less you say, the more you get to watch. And that's actually what you're called to be. A watchman who only speaks when he has to. If I'm jabbering on the watchtower, I'm going to miss something. So, Father, I ask that you help us to weigh our words. That the people who know the truth.